This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 256. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. Joined this evening, Thursday evening, that is, by Mr. Rob Beckman from Cincinnati, Ohio, special co-host. What is going on, brother? We're, we're having fun here in Cincinnati. Unfortunately, we made the news last week and uh, wanted to come on with you and uh, talk about some of the lessons learned that we can uh, get from the information we have currently about what the uh, shooting was last week at Fifth Third Bank. For sure, for sure, man. So that is the topic of today's episode. Uh, today's episode being the breakdown of Cincinnati Bank active shooter event occurring just a little more than a week ago. And uh, Rob, you're you're pretty you're pretty much ground zero as far as where this is concerned. You, you're very familiar with that building and where it took place. You know people that have worked there or do work there in that building, and uh, so it hit close to home for you. Oh. Uh- the glass that you see the, the officer shoot out, I've sat, I've stood there waiting for uh, to meet up for people with lunch. I've been in that lobby before, and uh, friends of mine were actually in that lobby just minutes before it was uh, shot up. So, I mean, there's uh, quite a bit that hits uh, very close to home. I've worked down there for 14 years, uh, and uh, to have that happen so close, uh, it really it hits close to home. It's crazy stuff, man crazy stuff so we'll get into that more but uh, first i do need to mention that this episode is made possible because of andrew branca's law of self-defense and we were doing a special live webinar with mr andrew branca uh, a week from today and actually a week from yesterday so next wednesday uh what is that that is the 26th i believe no 19th excuse me i'm getting weeks mixed up the 19th of september at 7 p.m mountain time that would be 9 p.m eastern for those of you out that way and uh, 6 p.m pacific time so at 7 p.m mountain time on wednesday september 19th we will have this live webinar with Andrew Branca. And it'll be a great opportunity for participants to interact directly with us and with Mr. Branca and ask questions and, and really learn a lot about the law of self-defense. This is stuff that you need to know, folks. So I would encourage you to participate. You do need to pre-register and make sure you secure a spot. Space is limited in this webinar. Okay, we only take we can only take so many seats. So head on over to lawselfdefense.org forward slash quiz webinar to get registered. And that's a little bit different link than what you're probably used to. That is not law of self-defense. That is lawselfdefense.org forward slash quiz webinar. And this part of this is is sort of us reporting back on this. Uh, some of you have probably taken this quiz. It was a 10-question quiz that we launched back in May. And it was asking just simple questions about law of self-defense stuff, right? You know, and you, you were tested on what your knowledge was on those things. And uh, we're going to report on a lot of the findings of that quiz. So far, we've had nearly 18,000 people submit responses on that quiz, which is remarkable. And the results of that are rather telling. And I'll, let me just tell you, uh, most of you for sure, <laughs> like very, very, very few people actually got a, a good score. And I'd say good score is nine or 10 out of 10, um, you know, an A minus or better, right? So we definitely don't want to see you, our listeners, making mistakes out on the streets or in your homes with regards to law of self-defense. So you need to make sure you know this crap. So 
Make sure you, if you can, we actually, I, I only talked about the one event. We actually have two events next week. So there should be one of these times that you, you, that you can participate in. The, the actual event will be an hour or an hour and a half or so long. Um, lawselfdefense.org forward slash quiz webinar to get signed up. Link in the show notes, uh, which today's show notes you can find very easily at concealedcarry.com forward slash episode 256. So the other, the second event next week is Thursday, September 20th at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. All right. So we have basically an afternoon session and an evening session. The evening session again is Wednesday, September 19th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. And the afternoon session is Thursday, September 20th at 1 p.m. Mountain Time or 3 p.m. Eastern. If you can't do the math. And if, you, if you're in Central or Pacific Time Zone, sorry, t- too bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, enough about that. We just hope that you're able to make one of those sessions. Uh, it's going to be worth it. I promise you they're completely free. Uh, so, And I always learn something from Andrew every time I listen to one of his webinars. It's, yeah. He's very knowledgeable. Yeah, for sure. He knows his stuff for sure. <laughs> Michael says he got 9 out of 10 on the quiz. Awesome! Guess what? You can you should still be in the in the webinar. <laughs> Find that number. Get that tenth answer. Yeah, so you understand for sure, man. All right, so um, I think let's uh, let's jump into tonight's uh, topic. And as we mentioned, as we introduced a little bit, we are talking about this active shooter event that just took place uh, last week in the Cincinnati, Ohio area. Actually, in downtown Cincinnati, I might I might say, and right in the center of downtown at Fountain Square, which is the center of Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you see this in the body cam footage as well. Uh, you know, you see the square off kind of mostly to the right of the one officer. And mm-hmm. and uh, there's people all over the place. And in one case, like people are trying to come into or come to the building and they're like, no, no, you got to stay over there. You got to stay in the square. Like, hello, we just had this whole, you know, place shot up here. So, you know, give us some space here. So, hey, Riley, one, yeah. one thing just to clarify as far as being a fifth third, fifth third's a bank. But the right. building that got shot up is actually their office building. So there are no right. tellers. There is no uh, cash transfers there. In case anybody doesn't understand that, there was no nothing as far as him trying to rob somebody or anything that he could have gotten there besides people. Right, right. And you see that definitely in, in the videos as well that are out there mm-hmm. as far as like as soon as you go in the entrance, you see basically it's a secure entrance type sort of thing. You have security guards uh, and, and they're you know having to check people as they're coming in, um, which – Interestingly enough, uh, these must not be armed security guards, uh, you know, because you, you, you do see in one video angle that the security guards, and they, they do have a fantastic job, I will say, in that, you know, they're trying to grab people and trying to get them to safety um, at risk to themselves. They could have just ran and, and took cover, but they were really focused on trying to make sure that they got, you know, as many people as they could to a, to a safe place. And so very first thing I'm going to throw out there is kudos to these security officers there working on a job that is a security job and they're not allowed to be armed and uh, definitely, you know, what was a problem, potential problem for them in this case. Uh, And also kudos to the police officers that responded so quickly and efficiently and were able to put this all down. I mean, this whole thing happened in a space of what, like four minutes or something. The first responding officers were there within three minutes. So you go along run the timeline. It's under five minutes. It was shooting, respond, uh, shooter down. It was a pretty, fantastic as far as how fast they were getting in there because if the guy would have been able to be there for another minute or two how many more people could have possibly been uh shot and at the same time you know could he have gone outside like we were just talking to the square where there were people milling all around and you know continue his uh you know killing yep yep so true so 
why don't we back up just a little bit, Rob? And uh, I'm, I'm going to kind of put a lot. I'm going to put you in the driver's seat a lot in this episode. Um, number one, because you're you're my special co-host, and number two, because <laughs> I think you have a pretty good, uh, uh, you know, you 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 kind of have a pretty good feel for what was what what went on in this event. So, backing up a little bit, walk us through the events of that day. As I as I understand it from news reports and people I've talked to. The guy showed up about 8.30 in the morning uh, in downtown Cincinnati and was going in and out of businesses to where they were getting suspicious because he wasn't doing anything there. He's just kind of walking in, looking around, um, and then would walk over to another business. That was one of the things that clued the police off or people called in and got the, got the police kind of uh, notified that there was somebody suspicious going in in and out of businesses. And then approximately a little bit after nine o'clock in the morning uh, is when he entered in the lobby of the fifth third towers, uh, their office building. And basically um, I haven't, I don't understand for sure whether it was some reports have said he came in through a loading dock and the loading dock around there is not easy to get to. Um, I know where it's at uh, for that building and other ones say he came in through the front door either way when he got to the lobby he uh, started opening fire with his uh, uh, with his pistol. It was a Taurus pistol, and uh, he had a combination of full metal jacket as well as hollow point ammunition that he was uh, in the bag. I don't know exactly what the mix was in between there, but he was firing for um, approximately three minutes. Uh, I, don't, I haven't heard how many rounds he'd fired during then. And then during uh, that time frame, the police that were already en route responded with uh, their AR rifles as well as their pistols had grouped up and then came around not knowing. The office building actually has two entrances uh, to it. And they went around to the square side, the fountain square side of the building and saw, saw the uh, shooter walk past the window. And that's where probably everybody's seen in the news coverage as well as on Facebook to where the officers shot through the window and uh, were able to go along and neutralize the threat. Yeah. Um, yeah. And boy, can you imagine being there, you know, so as these officers are approaching those windows, they're kind of coming, you know, they're they're coming, they're, they're on the one side of the square, right up against the building. They're walking along, uh, tactically moving, you know, moving a little bit slowly, uh, guns are out, uh, you know, looking around, trying to observe and, and be ready to respond. And then there's some stairs they got to come down. And just, just as they're coming down those stairs, you hear a bunch of shots ring out. Bang, bang, mm-hmm. bang, 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 bang. And it's, it's assumed that that is the uh, suspect uh, firing within the building. Uh, may have, could have been, there, there were other officers too, I think, that may have been coming from another angle. I'm not sure if they got to that, you know, were, in, were quite in that area yet or not. But anyway, you hear a bunch of shots uh, go off. And uh, at that point, they boy they they uh, they go into uh, you know full full on uh, you know take down the bad guy mode, and uh, you see one officer that's kind of in the lead, and he sort of is kind of almost caught out in the open uh, to some degree, and so he sprints across to a to a sort of a, co- a column of sorts, trying Another to take yeah you know, trying to take cover. Female officer, which is the officer wearing the body camera that we see most of the footage from. Uh, she comes, she, she pies around that corner, does a really good job with that, uh, shooting an M and P pistol and, and puts five or six shots through the glass. Uh, you do kind of see that she, her shots sort of 
trend downward. <laughs> you know, it kind of starts up here and kind of, you know, goes downward at, at an angle. But, uh, and I don't think she's the one that actually gets the uh, stopping shot on the guy. Um, from what from what I've been told or, or read, it sounds like the uh, shot that dropped him was from was from an AR-15. Right. Um, and you know that that appeared to be immediate incapacitation. As far as it must have been a shot to his central nervous system. As far as I can tell, because there is another video camera you see from inside the bank. He's running across, and then he just lights out, just and is down. Um, you know, and in the video where the officer who had the AR made the shot, you can see very clearly in the video to where the magazine was not in the well. And apparently that fell out a few steps before that because it wasn't properly seated or the gun wasn't holding yeah. it properly. And could, the officer obviously took the one shot he did have, but then he realized when the gun was no longer uh, feasible, he transitioned over to his uh, pistol very efficiently also. Yeah, yeah, he did. I, I will say that for sure. Yeah, that's an interesting one, right? Because uh, uh, I, I've watched the video probably dozens of times now at this point, as I, as I do with these sorts of things. I'm always, you know, <laughs> I watch them at normal speed. Then I'll watch them in slow mo. Then I'll go back to watch them at normal speed or maybe half speed again. And um, so I've watched that several times and trying to understand. Okay, this is this is the probably the biggest learning, uh, uh, you know, item. Like this is this is the one thing that I'm sure we're all is all on our minds if we're aware of what happened in this event. And we already had a comment here on Facebook about it. I, you know, saying that I assume we are going to be talking about properly seeing a magazine and they are. Yeah, that's right. So um, it took me several times watching. I, there were some people that were saying, no, I saw a magazine and uh, you know, all this stuff. And I never see a magazine in any of the footage we see. Okay. Um, what I, what I hear by the way, is as they are moving along the side of the building, approaching the stairs, uh, probably about eight seconds or so before they begin engaging the shooter, you hear an AR 15 and it sounds like it's, you know, kind of towards the back. You hear someone rack the uh, charging handle on, on an AR. Okay. So you hear that distinctive chink, you know, that an AR makes, and uh, I even think I've I've picked up on and heard the the magazine falling to the ground, but it's a little bit unclear, okay? Because there's there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of stuff going on, but I think I'm able to hear that magazine hit the deck. Um, so it happens a number of steps before this before the steps that they go down, and then you see that, that officer come into the camera angle, and yeah, he gets one shot off and goes, oh shoot, realize you know he kind of looks down and goes, yep, AR ain't doing anything for me now, throws it down. And I know there was some criticism from a few people I saw in some different messages or chats or, or comments saying, well, why would you throw down that gun? Um, yeah, I mean, you could talk about throwing this, throwing the sling on and, 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 and retaining that weapon. That's probably the preferred thing to do, like the textbook thing to do. But you know what? When things hit the fan like that. They <laughs> don't always go the way you planned. And you really got, in my mind, you've got to figure out how you um, finish. Yeah. How do you go along and stop, stop the uh, violence? If, yeah. And that's, that's the goal overall. Yes. We've got in training, we might do a hundred different things that would be more efficient than that. But at the end, you've got to stop the threat, whatever that takes. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, this is what I perceive is that, at that point, they are still actively engaging this guy. 
and you know the crap has hit the fan you know and the he's sort of also exposed like he's already kind of come around that column and he's getting ready to engage right and he gets that one shot and then goes oh shoot and rather than take the time to throw the sling on he just drops and grabs his pistol and i'll tell you that's a fast that's a faster transition than if he'd taken the time to get that sling on and at that point that rifle is dead you know it, it is not usable there's no ammunition to be put into it uh at least the magazine is some some distance away um, they, they obviously have a pretty good feel for where the threat is. So it's not like it's a concern that this threat is somehow going to, you know, get access to that gun and pick it up because it's been dropped in the gunfight and be able to put it into use. So, um, Tristan here is, is commenting. He was committed. He had to act. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying here is he is kind of at a position where he just, he needed to get his pistol out. He needed to get back into the fight as quickly as he could. And his one way of doing that was to grab the pistol, which he did. And he then moved up on the window. At that point, they realize it looks like the threat's gone down. He's moved up. He's doing a very good thing, by the way, at that point. If you if you notice in the video, he's actually right up on the glass and making sure he's got his pistol aligned through one of the larger bullet hole openings. It's, it's a place where two or three holes went through. And he has got his gun aligned through that opening, keeping it on the threat, ready to engage again if he has to. And that's a really good thing uh, because... You know, that's that's what you want to do if you have to shoot through glass is you want to, you know, do your best to get shots on, on target through that glass and, and generally in, in one area if possible and then continue putting those those rounds through that, that area where you've already punched Minim- a hole. Minimize that deflection for, the sec- for your follow-up shots. Exactly. So he did a really good job, you know, being, being aware of, of things like that, uh, moving up you know, pro- providing cover on that bad guy while other officers began to maneuver and, and figure out, you know, how to get up on him and get, get the, get the scene secured. Basically. Um, the female officer did a great job in, in that. I mean, number one, she, she had, she had guts, you know, she was willing to go into the fight and engage and she did. But the other thing that she did really well that some people might not you know, notice intuitively, at least at first glance is that she did a really good job with her muzzle discipline which I got to give her credit because I'll tell you, I see a lot of cops out there that, that can get a little bit lax with their muzzle discipline. She did a phenomenal job. When officers moved in front of her or, or changed up positions, she, she was, I mean, she was on it. She dropped that muzzle down and made sure she wasn't, you know, you know placing that muzzle or pointing her gun at, at her fellow officers. So, you know, big time kudos on that point as well. She what also other- was, did, did a great job when she moved up behind the one officer and said, I'm on your right. And mm-hmm. because communication during these dynamic critical incidents become critical because you've got auditory exclusion, you've got tunnel vision, all that stuff is going through you. And you need somebody, you need somebody to say, hey, I'm right here. So you don't get surprised by them walking up behind you and you have an accident. Either they turn around um, and they have poor muzzle discipline or she has poor muzzle discipline. But there were a lot of good skills that she demonstrated there um, and the other officers on, on site did too. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That was, that was, that's a great point too. And that's one thing that's really easy to appreciate from this, from these videos is you hear the communication that's happening that's going on and they, they did a really good job uh, on that as well. Here's an interesting point. Dan writes and says, I'm curious about what ammo they were using and what the rounds recovered from the body looked like after they traveled through that plate, gra- plate glass. Uh, and that's, uh, 
yeah, I don't, I, I don't know that we will ever get that kind of information. It'd be, it'd be cool to get that information as far as, well, and it also sounds like it may have been just one round that actually, uh, ended up in the suspect. I don't know. We'll see. But, um, my experience in shooting glass with especially pistol bullets is they generally, you know, they ended up, they end up a lot of times performing like, uh, full metal jackets. Um, now some bullets are known to perform better through glass than others. Um, HSTs, federal HSTs, they're generally known to perform pretty well. Um, uh, gold dots are known to generally perform pretty well. Uh, there's a few others out there that are known to perform pretty well, but I have seen a lot of these same rounds also fail to expand and, and stuff through. I mean, the fact is anytime you shoot through glass, like you never know what you're going to get. Well, and one of the big factors uh, too, Riley, is is what what is the angle of shooting that? Mm-hmm. You can shoot a great bullet that goes through the glass fine when you're at a, when you're perfectly at ninety degrees, but all of a sudden, if you're shooting at a forty five degree or less, um, you could have different different things happen to it, and that's where I don't know if we'll ever find out. But uh, kudos to the Cincinnati police for being able to put shots on target, and uh, nobody else got hurt. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. As far as we know, no one did get injured from any shots fired by the uh, by the good guys in this case. Um, Bill here says uh, Cincinnati police use he says red dot, but I think he means gold gold dot. Bill, I'm not familiar with red dot hollow points. I think he just probably had a little Freudian kind of slip, sort of you know just keyboard. Spell check, maybe <laughs> that could be too. Um, so, I mean, and by the way, gold dot is probably one of the most popular rounds uh, chosen by uh, uh, police officers and agencies. HSTs are also very, very popular these days as well, as well as uh, Ranger uh, T or SXT uh, rounds from uh, Winchester. But uh, which all of those generally are known to perform pretty well. So let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about this. And actually, I forgot we we got to come back to the whole AR mag thing too. But uh, uh, Talk a little bit about deflection, Rob, uh, through shooting through glass. Uh, well, the, the big thing when you're shooting through glass is you're hitting a hard substance, and that's going to cause a certain amount of deflection. The shallower the angle, the more deflection you're going to have, and the less you're going to actually go through the glass. So if you're at uh, less than 45 degrees, you have a high likelihood that the bullet could almost bounce off the glass. It'll still crack the glass, but you could actually be ricocheting off the glass because of how shallow your angle is. If you're greater than 45 degrees, 45 to 90 degrees, then you've got a better chance of it penetrating through the glass. But depending upon what your angle is, you could have something where you're dead on to where you are, you know, two two inches to the right on a target that's 10 feet uh, on the other side of the glass or two inches to the left. And then you've also got to look at the angle. It's not just the left right angle, but it's the up and down angle. If you're shooting down uh, from where the offices were, if they were up on the, on the stairs a little bit and we're actually shooting down toward it, then they could have deflection uh, toward the, toward the ground also, depending upon again, what the, what the degrees of angles are, which makes it very tricky. Um, when you're shooting through glass, you, you showed that in the uh, vehicle fighting um, tactics uh, video, how, how much of a deflection you get. Just in, you were only a foot or two away, you take 10 feet where I think he was away from the glass and it becomes a, quite a bit more of an impact to the shoot point of, point of shot. Yeah, yeah. So we, uh, last year, uh, 
Jacob and I, uh, well, in the company, we put together this vehicle firearms tactics course, uh, video course, right? Uh, you can, uh, something that you can view online uh, on our website. Uh, I mean, you have to pay for it, of course, but uh, maybe we can put a link in the show notes or something as well. Um, one thing we cover in there is about deflection. <clears throat> And now that, that folk, that class was, or that course was very much focused on, on auto glass and windshields are definitely a unique type of glass to shoot through. Um, side window glass on a vehicle is probably, you know, it's, it's tempered and it's probably more akin to what most people are going to see in terms of glass and as far as how it performs. But then again, when you're dealing with these commercial buildings, they can have some pretty interesting glass on those buildings as well. I mean, you know, large, large, large glass panels. They need to be very strong. Uh, they they got to be tempered. They got to be. Uh, a lot of times, they'll have plastic film on or inside those those glass panes as well in those commercial buildings. So those can actually perform probably very similarly to windshield glass. De- you know, depending on the exact construction, you know, there's a lot of variances, but um, just knowing, like, in looking at the angles where some of these officers were shooting from, typically what you, what you see is the the bullet is deflected the opposite direction of what you would think. Okay, because basically what happens is the bullets try to they try to turn perpendicular to the surface they're passing through. If that makes sense, is that I mean, is perpendicular too big of a word? <laughs> I'm just teasing, you know, so, so like, okay. So the officer, she's pying around the corner, right? And so the glass she's looking at is closer to her on the left and and it gets further away towards her right. Right. So it's angled away that direction. I'm just trying to describe this in a way that makes sense. If you're, if you're not able to actually see this. Um, and so shooting, she's shooting at a slight angle. It's not as steep as, as you know, it's, it's fairly straight on, but there's still somewhat of an angle, probably 15 degrees or so, maybe 20. And what the bullet's going to try to do is try to turn towards the left. And that seems so, it seems, it seems very counterintuitive to a lot of people, but, but until you start seeing, you know, and, and shooting glass yourself uh, firsthand, it, you know, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but you'll start to figure out kind of how it works. And so chances are, and this is something that's good to be aware of. It's not like you can really, you really, there, there are no guarantees once you start shooting glass, right? There are no guarantees, uh, I'm telling you what it generally does, and even if it does turn the way I'm telling you it, it it'll turn. You you have no idea just how much it's going to turn, right? Well, one thing to keep in mind compared to the auto glass, Riley, is the building glass there is double pane, so it's not only going through one piece of glass, but it's actually going through a second piece of glass. So. I, w- I would expect that there would be more of a of a turning of the bullet. There could almost, be. yeah, because first first pain, boom, second pain, it's still on an angle, but it keeps turning it uh, little by little. Yeah, yeah, no, there there are so many factors here, right? So it's not like we can look at that and go, well, I'm at fifteen or twenty degrees, and so because that suspect is ten or fifteen feet behind that, I know that this bullet's going to deflect exactly nine inches to the left. Like you, you cannot do that, <laughs> right? But it, it is something at least to be kind of aware of. Um, the 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 big thing is is if assuming you had a somewhat stationary threat 
um, if possible, you want to try to put as many of those rounds through the same spot as you can. Um, and that's, that's asking a lot. You can see in this incident that she begins firing. I assume her shots drift to the right and down also, but mostly to the right because maybe he at that point is moving that direction and then he comes back towards her left. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, you got to do what you got to do, right? You know, and you got to have hope and faith that, that, that you're going to, hopefully connect with this guy, right? You know, so the point is, you know, I, I just want to take a moment and talk about this idea of deflection um, so that people at least are aware of and are kind of thinking about that. And also, if you have, if you have the opportunity to attend some training uh, where you get the opportunity to shoot through glass and see and witness this firsthand, it, it's really eye-opening. We hope at some point in the future to to maybe be able to do that type of training in person. But for right now, you can go to concealedcarry.com forward slash VFT, which stands for Vehicle Firearms Tactics, and you can you can, uh, you can can see that course. You can get that uh, purchased and, and go through that. And we cover quite a few things in there um, that I think will be valuable to you in this type of incident. So anything else you want to add on that on that point? No, I, I think we covered the shooting, shooting through the glass. Uh, it's it's one of those variables that's hard to tell for sure because it all depends the angle. And then it also all depends on how far away from the glass that the person yes. is. The further away from it, the greater the deviation is going to be. You know, you, you even saw that in the, in the video, uh, the, the vehicle video, to where just, you know, 12 inches away from the uh, front windshield, you had deflection of a couple inches. Well, yep. if the guy was 10 feet away from the window, how, how far would those two inches end up being? And that's where it's a uh, pot. It's, it's, it's really a, a, a crapshoot to figure out whether or not you, um, you know, where you shoot, but the best uh, choice is to go along and shoot through the same hole because the first shot gets deflected. Yes. But then the second, third, fourth shot, hopefully you're not getting deflected and they can uh, connect. Yeah. Also what, what, uh, the other thing I've noticed too is, even if you're not able to go through exactly the same hole, and this is going to be dependent on the thickness of the glass, like really thick glass is just going to cause problems all the way around. Like if you don't go through the exact same hole, you're still going to see severe uh, deflection and deviation. But uh, the, the more you punch a bunch of holes in kind of the general area, kind of the softer that area of glass becomes and, and it will begin to, to lessen its effect on, on the bullet. Um, and so, yeah, you just you got to do what you can do. You know, you put put sights on target and pull the trigger and and do the best you can do, and, and that's all you can ask in a situation like this. Uh, it it worked out eventually, right? You know, they within a matter of seconds they were able to put this guy down, and that's uh, that's really remarkable. I mean, like like we started off talking, this whole event happened within three to four minutes from start to end. And uh, that's that's remarkable. It saved lives for sure. The fact that this guy chose such a central location to the city where it's so populated, there's going to be plenty of law enforcement presence in that vicinity is why they are able to so quickly respond and get to that scene and, uh, uh, and able to get him. And for, here's the other thing too. I'm glad that he you know, was still in that kind of entrance or foyer area of that building, right? If he'd gone deeper into the building, that could have, I mean, number one, casualties for sure would have gone up. And number two, it would have been a lot harder to uh, to find and locate him in a, in a building of that size with multiple floors and everything else going on there. Yeah, he was right by the elevators there. And if he would have went along, 
and gone up the elevator to a different floor as law enforcement, they wouldn't have known necessarily which floor he was on. And then that becomes a big cat and mouse game as people are trying to leave those floors, all law enforcement's trying to get up to the floors and that could, could have gotten extremely um, bad for all involved. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm guessing Rob that this building and or this company, this bank, uh, may have not had a, you know, may not have allowed guns. You're, you're correct, Riley. It's a <laughs> no carry zone. Yeah. I, I kind of figured, um, you know, that's unfortunate, you know, as far as, I mean, it could have, it could have been worse than it was. And mm-hmm. the, the problem is, is you have a big building with a lot of people that can't do a lot to defend themselves. Right. Exactly. Yeah. If he would have went up to the floors, if there would have been more people in the lobby there, if he would have gone out to the uh, Fountain Square, the thing that's interesting, Fountain Square being a being a uh, public place, you're allowed carrying in their building, you're not allowed carrying. So if he would have came out to Fountain Square, there'd been a higher likelihood that uh, armed citizen could have potentially stopped him. Where if he would have stayed in the building, he yeah. would not have been been he wouldn't have been greeted by anybody armed except for the police, which of course they were just. Uh, getting there and we're we're lucky to be able yeah. to catch him on the other side of the glass if he'd been in an elevator like i said it could have went it could have went on for hours yeah. um cat and mouse throughout throughout the building yeah and, and the way that a lot of times those those type of situations resolve is you end up with a or or develop or end up what they turn into is a is you know shooter that's holed up and maybe has some hostages uh, you know, yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. It could have turned from a three or four minute event with minimal casualties to a multi hour event. Uh, you know, as this guy ended up deeper into the building and holed up. And by the way, he had plenty of ammunition too, right? I mean, yeah. That, that, Keep that in point, mind that he was dressed like a, a an office worker. There was confusion. Mm-hmm. The early reports have said he worked there or that he used to work there. Uh, the reports I've, I've read recently have said that he doesn't work there and never has, but he looked just like any other casual business, uh, yep. worker, downtown, slacks, nice tucked shirt, in shirt. slacks with a, with a, uh, computer bag hanging off his shoulder. Yeah. And so he could have went up to many floors. He could have went up to a floor and then come down the uh, fire escape and said, Oh, there's somebody up there shooting. And then the police would have been, hunting for something that wasn't there. I mean, if he would have planned this out a little bit more, it could have been a lot worse, a lot worse. Yep. Yep. Speaking of, you know, you talked about, Hey, if, if he had been out in the square instead of in that gun free zone of a building, uh, you know, there would have been a much greater chance of a citizen or somebody being able to put a stop to it even maybe quicker. Uh, I was just reminded that, and this just came to my attention a few hours ago that there was a shooting earlier today in Chicago of a uh, law enforcement officer. He was, it was a traffic stop. And, uh, he was the, uh, the driver of the vehicle, uh, shot the officer multiple times. Uh, he actually, uh, exited the vehicle as the cop was pulling up or was coming up to the vehicle and then shot the officer multiple times and a good Samaritan uh, concealed carrier that was in the vicinity driving his vehicle. He stopped in heavy traffic, it says, exited his vehicle and shot at the suspect hitting him one time and uh, uh, basically, you know, stopped this from getting worse potentially. So, I mean, just, it's amazing the power of, and I think the general societal good that exists because we have good people, uh, you know, carrying a firearm for 
their personal self-defense, but also some, in some cases, and we got to be careful about inserting ourselves in other people's problems. But in this case, you know, he, he may very well have saved this officer's life or anybody and that's else. Just one of many instances that you, that you read in the news throughout the year to where private citizens have come to the aid of law enforcement along the side of the road or to a neighbor or different things like that. It, it's definitely a risky situation inserting yourself, but if there wasn't somebody there, law enforcement, your neighbor, whoever it is that you're trying to assist, what would have happened to them? It's yep. anybody's guess, but it probably would not have been good. Yep. Yep. For sure. For sure, man. All right. So, uh, back to the Cincinnati event. All right. So, so some other things we, we need to talk about, and we talked about a little bit already. We, we know the one officer that was carrying an AR 15 and there may have been others. I think I saw another officer with another AR. Uh, he, I'm not sure who fired the, the shot that stopped. Um, but, uh, that's not really relevant, but we know we had the one officer that showed up to the fight and unfortunately wasn't quite ready for the fight with his, uh, patrol carbine. So let's talk about that a little bit. And there's been some really good discussion here on the Facebook uh, comments between a couple of you guys, uh, talking about, you know, how you, uh, stage your magazines, how you load your magazines, that sort of thing. You know, there's been this common practice for a long time, uh, to download your 30 round AR mags to 28 rounds and things like that. I know some guys will even, you know, that'll do 29. A lot of guys I think do 28 cause they, I don't know, we, we psychologically feel better with even numbers, um, stuff like that. Okay. So that's, that's all really good discussion. Um, but here, here, let's let's talk about this just real quick. All right, so Rob, I'm going to turn it over to you. Like, what do you have to say as far as how do you load an AR-15 properly in such a way that you avoid having this embarrassing incident of of dropping a magazine out of the gun when you don't intend to? <laughs> well, there's a couple couple things to keep in mind. One. AR magazines, if they're carried around, whether they're in holsters or um, inside a car with, without being in the magazine well, you could potentially have the bullet start, starting to ride out outside the magazine. And one of the things that I go along and recommend to my students is, and I'll try to demonstrate it, is when you go along and insert the magazine into the AR, and I'll use my hands here, that you bring it up on an angle and then insert it that way so it goes inside. And the reason for that is if you've got one or two rounds that the bullet tips are sticking out, that could potentially keep it from uh, from going in and you're losing valuable time. But the second thing, once you get it in there, is to make sure you insert it fully. And when I take my hand off of it, I actually go along and tug on it a little bit. It's all the same motion because your hand's leaving the magazine anyway because you just inserted it. And make sure it's it's all the way in there. If it's if it comes out with your hand, then obviously you've got to go through and do those steps again to make sure it's seated properly or go to a second magazine. But just like that officer found out, having an AR that's only got one round in it uh, makes it a very limited use. Yep, yep. So I do the same thing, you know, as far as uh, this is how I've been trained the whole the whole time I've known how to use an AR-15. You grab a magazine. I, I teach my students to, to grab it kind of with a fist, right? So like if I'm carrying a magazine in a pouch or something on my side or behind me, I have it so that 
it's kind of backwards from probably what a lot of people think, you know, that, that it's supposed to be. Uh, so basically the, the tip of the bullets is pointing towards the middle of my back. So, cause what that does is I reach around behind me and I grab the mag and it comes out and it comes out in my fist pointed in the right direction. Okay. And then you go to the mag well and you go in. And because as you go in, the beautiful thing about the AR-15 platform, especially if you're right, if you're right-handed, if you're lefty, you know, it's a little bit different, obviously, but if you're, but most of, you know, 90% of us are righties and you go in to the magwell and I go in firmly, right? And then my thumb is right there by the bolt, uh, bolt catch. You hit that in the chambers and then I pull away. And as I'm pulling away, I just confirm that that magazine is actually seated. So same thing. I'm tugging on that magazine. And for mm-hmm. some reason, as I'm pulling away, I go, oh, that's loose then back in you go, maybe tap it really firmly. And then I'm going to rack again, just to ensure that I made sure I got one into the chamber. Cause keep in mind the way I, the way I do it, maybe it's a little different. Some people will go push, pull, and then hit the bolt catch. I, I, I like, I, I kind of like efficiency of motion. So I go in hit bolt catch. And as I'm, as my hand is coming away, I'm, I'm tugging on the magazine sort of thing, just a little bit, you know, different way of approach of approaching it. But um, but that's, that's the whole thing is making sure that thing is actually seated. It's so easy to not to get AR 15 mags seated fully. Uh, especially if you do load them, if you top them off now where I actually see most people have issues with seating the mags. Okay. Cause like if you just firmly insert it, right, it should seat. Okay. If, if you're firm, I mean, firm, like you, you shove it in, you know, with, with good effort, it, it should go in, even with 30 rounds in it, especially if it's a, if it, if it's a PMAG, okay? Um, where people have issues is they overload their mags. On PMAGs and some other magazines, you can actually squeeze 31 in those things. If you have 31 rounds in the mag, it does not want to seat. <laughs> things are just too tight. And, uh, you know, how, how, we know, how we can know this, you know, whether it's overloaded or not, and this is why I think loading 20, if you're going to download why another reason why 28 is probably a little bit more preferable than 29 is that if you're overloaded, your last round on the top is going to be, if, if you're, if the magazine is facing away from you, the direction that the bullets are going to fire, your last round is going to be on the left side of the magazine. Okay. If it's overloaded or if you have 29. Okay. But I'm more concerned about overloading. And so if you have 30 or 28, your last round is going to be on the right side because they stagger, right? So that's one thing when I'm loading magazines, I always make sure that my top round is on the, as I hold it away from me, like in the direction it's going to be fired, that that last round is on the right side. Okay. That's, that's really important. If you're on the left, there's a possibility that you've squeezed an extra round in there and 31 does not like to work very well. So that's just a a little, a little bit of, you know, kind of a tip I would offer when you're loading your AR mags, pay attention to where that last staggered round ends up and make sure it's on the right. Then you're, you're most likely going to be okay. Um, yeah. And then just make sure that you firmly insert it. I know. So like, uh, Dan, I think was talking about how Greg Elifritz, who's, a, who's an Ohio guy, an Ohio yes, cop even, right. And he's mm-hmm. not in Cincinnati, but he's close enough. I'm sure this struck close Columbus. to home for him okay, as well. Just, just up 71 from us. Right. So he, um, he's a big advocate of loading 28. A lot of guys are, it's totally cool. I, I've actually, I've got some mags that are, that are, uh, staged long-term, uh, they're loaded at 28 that for long-term st- staging. That's, that's how I, how I do that. Um, a little bit less pre- uh, tension on the mags. I don't worry so much about 
feed lips stretching, especially on PMAGs, but I load those long-term storage ones, 28, and call them good. Man, they're, they're good. Um, for ones that I'm using regularly, I, I generally do load to 30, and I'm confident enough. I've, I, I run an AR platform probably more than most people do because in my competition as a three-gunner, uh, we shoot ARs a lot. Uh, I get more more time on an AR platform than than mo- actually, probably ninety six seven eight percent of cops get, um, you know. So because they're we're just so focused on on learning and using our pistols, um, so I'm comfortable with with thirty round mags as long as you follow the procedures like I've talked about: insert, bolt catch, tug, or insert tug bolt catch. I don't care how you do it, or insert tug, you know, rack the uh, charging handle. Right? That's that's the procedure. So. Push, pull, and uh, make sure you have a round chambered. Anything yeah, I else? think the biggest biggest thing, Riley, which, which you're going over is if you're going to run an AR or any firearm, train with it, learn how it works, learn how to be efficient in your motion so that when you get in a high-stress situation like what happened down there at um, on in Cincinnati on Fifth Third, uh, those, are, those are your muscle memory, and you can – execute those without having to think about it because when things are going on you're trying to figure out where where the shots are being fired from or who's around you different things like that's not the time to go along be sitting there thinking about you know insert mag magazine tug push the bolt or do i tug and and push and pull the bolt handle you know one of those types of things that should be second nature to you by the time you get into a situation like that that comes from good training absolutely Uh, muscle memory man i mean and and a lot of running an AR platform is, or really any carbine for that matter, but especially the AR, a lot of that is muscle memory. You know, it, it is not a difficult platform to learn and shoot, uh, but there are some things about it that if you just learn it to a point that it becomes subconscious, uh, then running that platform is so, so, so easy, so effective. Um, actually, interesting comment from Dan. He says, what about military issue mags that illegally copied the PMAG and got around it by reversing the follower? Um, I don't see those very often in the civilian world, so I'm not too worried about it. But also, my other comment back to him is, make sure you know your equipment, okay? So pay attention as you're loading things. Uh, If your first round starts on the left, then you have one where you want to end up on the right. And if it starts on the right, for whatever reason, then you want to make sure your loaded rounds ended up on the left. It's not, not, not too difficult. Okay. But, uh, just make sure you understand your equipment and um, know, know your equipment and practice with it. T- totally. It's by the way, I know, you know, it's all controversial on people when you say, go shoot some competition to get better at defensive, you know, shooting and stuff. And, and what I would say there is that running a AR in three gun will teach you so quickly how to use that platform efficiently we're not talking about tactics here. We're just talking about learning a platform and knowing how to use it quickly and efficiently. Go shoot some some competition where you got to run an AR hard. And you will, I mean, you just don't even, you get to where you don't even have to think about what you're doing. And run that, the AR, run the shotgun, run the pistol, and do those repetitively. Yes, you've got to, you, you will have that muscle memory and it will be there when you need it. Yep, yep. Okay, so we've talked about the whole, you know, make sure your your gear is ready when you come to the fight. How to load an AR properly. Uh, what's next, brother? What do we, what else we got there? Any other lessons? Well, here's one lesson, and uh, put it put it out there. The lady who got shot twelve times, 
Oh, the man. Sto- story that I heard about that is that she walked in through the revolving doors with a phone in her ear right into the gunfire. Mm. Um, kudos to her uh, will to live and her and her fight to survive uh, being shot 12 times. She was released from the hospital yesterday. But I think many of us would go along and say, it would, if you're going to be in a public place like that, you need to have situational awareness. Don't have a uh, phone to your ear. Don't go along and be that blind to whatever else is going on, because at least there was one person who had already shot that had ran out of the building that was bleeding. Yep. Yep. That person was found out on the sidewalk, right? Out out on the square in in the public area there. And that's where she still went in there. Because you can imagine yourself, you're on a conference call. Yes, yes, I'll be in a few minutes, but we need to start this right away. And all of a sudden, boom, 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 it's going on around you. And if she would have had just a little bit of uh, awareness of what's happening, uh, she may have uh, gone along and said, I got I to gotta walk the other way. I'm going to run. I'm not going to continue the conference call. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's bad what happened to her, not blaming her for it. But at the same time, it's a lesson that we can take away from it and say, we've got you need to have situational awareness and anything that distracts you from it is uh, something we should uh, definitely try to avoid in a public place. Yeah. And Tris comments, it's amazing what people can tune out with a phone in their hand. So, so, so true. Um, yeah. So that's a, that's a very, very good, valuable lesson to be learned. And we see this very frequently. Uh, I see it all the time in my world. You know, when I go public places and I'm looking around and I'm just amazed at how many people are tuned out to the world around them. Talking on their phone or texting. Yeah. Reading yeah. Facebook, uh, Instagram, all the social media applications that distract us from looking around and seeing somebody walking up to us that looks suspicious. Yep. And Bill, Until it's too late. Bill comments that, uh, and this is true, I can confirm this, Bill. I, I just read a, a NBC News story uh, about this woman that was shot 12 times and has been released from the hospital. What a remarkable story. But, uh, yes, she is a, a vice president at the Fifth Thirds uh, uh, Bank. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, she's a pretty high-ranking person at the bank. And like you said, I mean, she's probably in some important call. She's an important person. She's got, mm-hmm. you know, she's running a, a some large division of this you know, big bank and, and, uh, but still, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll say, I mean, it's not like I'm perfect, you know, I mean, have I been in public on my phone? Of course. But when you're doing that, we can still, and it takes, it takes a great deal of mental effort, right? Like you can be on that phone. You can be doing that phone call at the same time. I can be, I can be observing and looking around and paying attention. I might even step up that part of me of, you know, that, that part of my awareness even more than usual because I recognize that, Hey, I've got this other thing going on. So I need to step it up a little bit and just make sure that I'm, I'm being aware and keeping my head on. You know, I, I don't try to use the, the term head on a swivel too much. Cause I think it's thrown around too often. And people think that if they're just doing this all the time, that they're, that they're good to go, that, 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 that is situational awareness. And that's, one little small aspect of it. Um, but, but definitely when you got a phone in here, you definitely have to be on a little bit of a swivel. Well, one thing, one thing I think that, uh, need to realize she's walking across the square, which is a wide open place. She can see everything that's going on. When she came to the doors to her office building, that's a transitional zone. That's when things change. There's the public outside. Then, then you've got the people that are inside. And that's one of those times where you really should, before you enter that transitional area, 
go along and say, okay, is it safe to go in there? Is there something going on? Are they uh, wrestling somebody to the ground on the other side of the glass? Something else like that that would might make you go along and say, hey, I'm going to get out of there. Yeah. Really great uh, observation from Dan here or comment. Situational awareness, yes, but also trained to operate at an initiative deficit. deficit. No matter how aware you are, someone can get a half second or more ahead of you. This This is very true. It is good to have plans that operate on the assumption that your opponent has struck the first successful blow. Very, very good stuff there. Um, very, very true as well. So, um, <clears throat> all right. So what so What are some other things? I'm going to dive a little bit. I'm going to be a little bit more picky now. And this is on actually that female officer that we have this body cam footage, you know, from the moment she's responding. She's in the in her patrol car responding to the scene. She shows up. She puts it in park, shuts it off jumps out the door and is immediately trying to communicate with other officers on the scene to figure out what's going on. Where, where is he at? Where do we need to go? And this is my thought. And this is being pretty picky. Okay. But still, I think it's worth thinking about if you are a cop out there and you're listening or, and I know that we do have officers that listen to this podcast. Uh, if you know you're responding to an active shooter situation or a suspected active shooter situation. Now I know there's, optics involved when you know so many political things with police departments and it's not like we want to be seeing what our our ARs slung over our shoulders uh you know very frequently if possible but but if you know you're responding to a, an active shooter situation um don't you think you'd want to go into that with the best firepower that you can and so the one thing i'm noting is that i mean she's not like some cop that was you know already outside of his patrol car or standing on some street corner or doing something like that that just had to run over and he's got whatever he's got on his belt she's in her patrol car and most american cops especially in metro areas these days as far as the ones i'm familiar with have patrol rifles in their out in their car since so, is different uh, from that riley they do are not, they? not all all cruisers have a rifle Boy. some still shotguns and it's all up to officer discretion because before they can carry they're required to go through a certification course and some oh, people don't definitely. go through it so I, they don't, i'm they a don't colorado post certified patrol rifle instructor mm-hmm. man like you got to have that training yep you know but not everybody has that so that's why not mm. everybody um as i understand it on cincinnati police force actually uh has has a patrol rifle with gotcha them. Some, of, some of them have shotguns but some sure. of them don't have any at all sure so so you know i think that might be something that cincinnati wants to to maybe look at and that that sometimes can be a very even even that alone could be a political issue in these large city police departments well we don't want every cop running around with a with a patrol rifle um but and and sometimes it could be a budgetary thing right at least if it is a budget restriction as far as not being able to put ars or patrol rifles in the hands of every cop at least those cops should have that option to provide it and, and pay for themselves. Uh, it, you know, it just give them the option to be able to have one, right? As long as they have the appropriate training, which I'm completely on board yeah. with you on. Most, so, most of the officers that I know in Cincinnati that have patrol rifles, they actually run their own rifles. So that yeah. they've got a, a setup that they know they've trained with that it's the same yeah. every day, no matter what. And, and that's actually, that's really good. I think, I think that's actually advisable because I've been in some police departments and seen what they're, standard issue rifles are and uh they're 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 not desirable <laughs> yeah the common rifles end up being used you know by three shifts a day and they get 
dinged and knocked around and optics are out and yeah. everything else like that don't work properly on something that per- like it's one thing on a pistol right like where iron sights are only so good and a pistol you're only using at such a range that it's not like you're that concerned about it being sighted in but on something as personal as a rifle uh you want you you want confidence that, that you know yes at 50 yards or 100 yards this thing is is sighted in i know where it's going to hit i have confidence to take a difficult shot if i need to if i'm concerned about other people or innocence in the way uh stuff like that but anyway this that's just the point i'm, I'm and, you know so she may very well not have had one in her vehicle that's fine but is this something if you are a cop and you carry one with you is this something you want to maybe think about and make sure that, hey, if I'm responding to an active shooter situation, I want to make sure that I'm getting out of my vehicle with that? Yeah, heck yeah. Like, go in with as much firepower as you can because you don't know what you're going to go up against. These guys are lucky that this guy just had a pistol. And at that, well, kind think of a crappy too, one. The officer with the AR didn't have a backup magazine. Yeah. If he, if he if he's going to grab the rifle, um, you know, they make mag- magazine pouches that fit onto the stock of the ARs mm-hmm. that you can put the second magazine there. Backup. Um, somewhere having a second magazine because just the Cincinnati uh, police loadout is they have um, one uh, 15 round in their M&P and then they've got uh, three additional uh, magazines on them for their for their pistol on that AR on the AR. Once the magazine was dropped, it was the AR had one shot and it was useless after that. If there was a backup magazine someplace or the officer was able to grab a vest or something with a couple extra magazines in it, it may have been able to be used uh, a, more than just a single shot. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So um, anyway, just some interesting things to think about there. Another thing I would say to think about is, and this is not always practical, but uh, I would think about having a good set of plate carriers staged for these kind of type of situations as well. Especially if you do have a patrol rifle, I think it makes loads of sense if possible to quickly throw on a plate carrier, um, that already has, you know, spare mags for your pistol and your rifle, um, ready to go. And then you're also a lot better protected against, you know, you hopefully got hard plates in there. Uh, you know, you might be going up in an active shooter situation against somebody with an AR, uh, or or a higher powered weapon than a standard you know nine mil or forty five or whatever right so um, once again not always practical because you know depending on the situation you may not always be able to typically you're going to have that stage in your trunk um, so you may not be able to quickly you know you may not have the time to get back there grab that throw it on I mean if practiced and if staged properly you should be able to do it within seconds but you might not have the chance but is it good to have that option I think it's good to have that option all right so those are also some good thoughts there. Um, yeah, you know, so I think let's take this from the civilian or the uh, participant, you know, kind of viewpoint. Like you're you're just there in the building, right? So you're going about your day, Rob. Um, you work at this bank, you know, you're an executive of some sort or whatever it is, and uh, all of a sudden shots ring out. You know, like what what are what are some things that you would say to just the general public and at at some point we are all in this in this boat you know uh at some point we are we are always the uh we're going to at some point be potentially on the receiving end of this type of violence and maybe not necessarily situated or able in a way to respond ourselves so as a unarmed 
civilian inside a, a facility or a building like this? I mean, what are some things that you would have to say uh, to folks like that? Well, first of all, once you go along and you know that there is a threat, is get the hell out of there. Um, the further you can, further distance that you can put between you and the other, than the shooter, the better off your survival is that you will that you will survive. Um, if you can't get out for some reason because you don't know exactly where they're at or they're in the stairwell and you can't get down the stairwell, uh, those type of situations hide. And we've seen many videos on YouTube and different places like that to where if you're in a conference room, go along and stack chairs in front of the door. Um, schools, conference rooms, office buildings, uh, restaurants, it doesn't matter. You want to stop them from getting to you. Yes, yeah. if they've got a gun, they could potentially shoot through the door. But at the same time, uh, if they can't open the door all the way, you've limited their ability for what they can do versus if they can just walk in. And then the third choice is to fight them. And you know, just a personal connection. My son worked two, two blocks away from that building downtown that day. And I was in text contact with him. And the thing I told him was, you you got to you got to make it home. Mm-hmm. You know, doesn't matter what what else goes on if he's got a run out, run out the, uh, fire, uh, fire exit in order to get that, uh, distance. If he's got to hide or whether or not he, he has to go and, uh, fight the person, he's got to make it. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the attitude you got to take. You, you, you don't have a hundred options. You've got three, get out of there, hide, or you're going to fight. And the thing, uh, I was just talking to my daughter, uh, tonight about this was, when, when something like that comes along, you are not, you are not, you know, nice to them. You do anything and everything because the only thing that's got to be on your mind is making it home, making yeah. it to your, your kids, making it back to your family. And as I told her, and she's not a big girl, um, I, I told her, you'd be very surprised what you can do if all of a sudden you go along and say that that person's going to prevent you from getting home, you know, biting their nose. Um, you know, gouging their eyes, doing those kind of things to deter them uh, will come very natural. But you've got to put that in your mind that you are going to make it home uh, that night uh, and you're going to fight to make sure you get home. Yeah. Really good points, Rob. And definitely as a parent, I can, you know, uh, like I get your perspective, man. It's like you want nothing more than for your child or your loved ones to uh, make it out there safely. And, and there's no shame, uh, in being a coward. Uh, like nobody has to be a hero in these kind of events, right? You're a survivor, uh, not yeah. a coward at that point, you know? Exactly. I mean, uh, your first, you know, I mean, it's one thing if I'm there and I've got my little kids with me or something like, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely gonna be more focused on like protecting my, my children. But I mean, if it's you and a bunch of other adults, like, you, I'm sorry, you know, your number one priority is numero uno, uh, you know, out above and beyond that, that's, that's on you. That's, that's, that's going above and beyond than what's necessary. Um, and it's noble and it's honorable, but it's not dishonorable to, to just turn and run and get the heck out of that situation at all. All right. So, um, one thing I was, here's, th- here's, a, here's sure. another thing I'll throw out to you, Riley, mm. um, that I didn't talk about, but. Once you know that you're not under the gun from the threat is knowing some basic first aid to be able to tend to those people. Say you can't get away say they shot through the door and somebody has been shot having some basic trauma, uh, 
knowledge of how to go along and make a tourniquet, how to go along and use compression bandages, doing those kind of things. Because let's face it, the police, the police uh, took approximately three hours, as I understand, to clear the entire fifth, uh, fifth third office building. And that was only about 15, 15 to 20 stories, I think. So you go along and think about how long that took. If you were, if you were on a floor way up there and they were still trying to, uh, you know, clear the building, you might have to survive or keep somebody alive for a couple hours before the paramedics can come and evacuate that person. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and that's one thing for sure. You know, no matter what, uh, if, if you are in an environment, uh, if you work for a company, if you're in a building where you cannot carry a weapon with you, I mean, for sure. Why not? Why you, you should for sure be having with you or carrying with you or have, you know, and actually both is, is the best idea, right? I think having trauma kits in your vehicle, having a portable trauma kit with yourself, a little IFAC or something. I know this is not always practical, you know, depending on how you're dressed or what you're carrying or whatever, but Hey, you know, that at the very least have a little tourniquet with you. Um, it's, not that unreasonable or unrealistic to have a, a, you know, in this day and age with a lot of different options to have a a basic tourniquet with you. And then it's your, how to make an improvised one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, having one with you is always, uh, more effective than the improvised ones, but yes, all these things are good. Right. And then have a trauma kit in your office or cubicle or whatever, you know, that you know where it is and you know how to use it and get there quickly. And, and, uh, you can save lives that way for sure. Many lives were saved at the Las Vegas shooting because people there responded, uh, you know, and a lot of times with improvised medicine, but in a couple of cases, and, and we had her on on the podcast, uh, uh, my friend Alicia now uh, out there, she was in attendance at that concert, and amazingly, in her backpack or purse or whatever, she had a little IFAC, basically, you know, she had a tourniquet, and uh, things were put to use, and that, that was amazing. So, and here was uh, one other thing, just a week or two ago, I think it was last week, early, early last week, I think it was, um, we've, we've, there's, there's been some more information, uh, kind of some preliminary investigative report type stuff that's been released from the Parkland shooting, okay? And uh, I don't know if folks have had a chance to see that, but I've uh, viewed some of that material, and what the, uh, what they've released uh, amongst all those, those details is kind of the timeline of that shooting, as well as the path that the shooter took going through the school, right? Remember, he started on the first floor, he worked his way up to the second floor, and then ended up on the third floor. One of those floors, one of those three floors, uh, didn't have didn't have any casualties. Do you know which floor it was, Rob? No, I haven't seen the report, but I would uh, suspect it was, well, I'd, I'd say maybe it's the first floor. It's actually the second floor. Now here's second why, floor. and and okay. is this is this is really interesting to consider. Okay, so the first floor is when the shooting start is where the shooting started. Okay, and uh, I think there was th- six or seven deaths on that first floor, and you know several others that were wounded. Um, then he worked his way up the stairs to the second floor, and by the time he got to the second floor, everyone on the second floor had taken cover, had gotten into classrooms had shut and or locked or blockaded doors and were hiding in the rooms where they couldn't be seen. And he literally, you know, he, he peeked through windows and doorways and worked his way down the hall and didn't see anybody and didn't shoot anybody. And then went, went his way up the second 
up the next flight of stairs, ended up on the third floor, and then found a bunch more victims up there. And uh, actually, that was where most of the carnage occurred, I believe, was on the third floor, numbers-wise. One of the theories as to why that was the case, why the third floor was not was did not also have the same opportunity to take cover and get in a place where you know they presented no targets was that because i mean the, the the second floor people were able to probably hear the commotion and the gunshots on the first floor right because they're right above it right so the second floor took cover but the third floor being separated like it was um may not have been able to hear or know anything was going on at all and so those people were caught out in the open and uh, it was it was pretty bad, right? And and so a couple things to to take from this, and and to your points, you talked about this a little bit already about the importance of you know getting into into a room, block blocking the doors or locking doors, um, taking cover, hiding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it is shown again and again and again that active shooters, when they encounter a a door. Uh, a room that appears to be unoccupied or it's locked or whatever, they pretty much move on. It's rare that they shoot through the door. By the way, on the first floor, most of the casualties were shots through the windows of the doors, right? Because, I mean, he caught wow. these people off off guard. They're in the classrooms and doors were closed in, I think, most of the cases, but they're caught off guard. So you have students and teachers that are in the open in that room that you can see looking through the window. And so he just shot right through the windows and was able to hit. Uh, I think it was very, I don't even know if he actually ever really stepped foot in any of the classrooms. Mostly did all of his shooting through windows and through doorways. Um, so there, there's there's just a lot there, I think, to learn and make sure that we're clear on that we're, you, in this kind of situation, you know, run and get a, completely away if you can. If that's not feasible, then get to a place where you can hide, turn off lights, make it look like it's unoccupied, and do anything you can to deter entrance. Uh, and and most likely, that's going to make a difference in saving your life. All right? Here's the other thing. Recognize that this building, similar to that school, is multi-floored, and you might be on the third, fourth, fifth floor and not be aware that things below you are going on. Uh, until it's too late. So just another, you know, I, I think to that point, it just is another reinforcement to make sure that you're situationally aware. Even when you're in comfortable environments, be aware of your environment, be aware of what's going on, where people are located, know where the exits are, know what your plan is if something goes down based on where you're located in that building or on that floor or whatever it is. Okay. So, um, Good stuff there. And then also Dan, uh, and Dan, boy, he's been uh, really active tonight. He said, uh, Rob Pincus made a great video on the defensive uses of, of a dry chemical fire extinguisher. And uh, th- this is a great point, right? Um, if you could find an extinguisher and fire it off, what do those things put out? Rob, like? small. Uh, well, it puts uh, basically uh, smoke out, puts uh, yeah. nitrogen in those kind of things kind of put the Basically, fire you can out. Create a big old, big old cloud. Smoke screen, right? Yeah, smoke screen. Mm-hmm. Um, same, same thing applies. Like if you're in a long hallway, and maybe you hear shots coming from behind you somewhere. Okay, you know this guy is eventually, and you and you just don't have you like you don't have enough time to get to where you where you want to be or need to be. Um, this this is totally plausible. You know that you could create a big old smoke screen, and that and it's not going to solve the problem. You know forever, but it it 
may buy you a few seconds, and that's key. And then also using that extinguisher, that could become a weapon in your hands. If if you have the opportunity to, uh, 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 you know, surprise this guy from around a corner or anything like that, uh, come up behind him, you know, that's that could be a very effective uh, weapon striking to the head. So it's a multi multi purpose, multi use we- uh, well tool. And uh, that's I'm glad that Dan actually brought that into this into this uh, conversation. So. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of things like that. If you look in a normal office environment or even school that you can repurpose as uh, defensive weapons in order to uh, stop them, yep. you know, at least deter them a little bit. Um, you know, they, they show videos with people throwing things at them, throw heavy stuff at them, uh, use uh, fire extinguishers, uh, be able to go along and swing it at them like a bat. Uh anything that's deter because like you like you said active shooters the one thing they don't want to have is resistance and when they get to a door that's locked they're just going to move on when they get to some place where people are fighting back at them they're going to they're going to give up and go someplace that's easier yeah yeah it, it's just it's amazing it, it just it just works most it's it's a rare thing that a bad guy shoots through an object or shoots you know like it's rare that they shoot at something that they can't see Mm-hmm. And it's true with the good guys too. It's just it's just psychologically like we generally don't shoot even when we don't have any disre- we we have no regard for other lives in the area. Like we could just spray and pray. Most of the time bad guys don't shoot when they can't see something to shoot. And so all those things I just mentioned are tactics and techniques that that can work that can potentially, you know, make it so that, that guy's going to move on. From, you know, past you, or buy you some precious seconds in a in a moment where you, you're looking to 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 get away, um, or create an opportunity to uh, to potentially stop and and uh, take down this guy. So uh, yeah, uh, I, there's just many 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 opportunities there as I as I'm thinking through this. Now there's a question from Tris. He asks, uh, I, I think this is in reference to the uh, students on the third floor of uh, the Parkland uh, High School. Um, and uh, he says, was well, there no way to alarm them? Now, there was an announcement made um, over intercoms, but it's not always, cl- you know, like sometimes those aren't always heard or understood. And the other thing is like, somebody did set off a fire alarm, if I'm not mistaken, at Parkland yeah, as well. He pulled the fire alarm to get people to come out of their classrooms, and, from and what so, I understand. So what was probably happening is that you had, once again, students on the second floor recognizing gunshots or teachers and students, right? And teachers probably pulling students in the classrooms and making sure that they were safe. Um, So recognizing that something on the first floor was going on. So they, they did what they needed to do. The third floor students hearing only probably a fire alarm going, Oh, we need to get out. And so that's probably why there were so many students and teachers caught out in the open on the third floor. So it's just, you know, um, I do think that there's a lot of things that could be looked at and potentially done from a tactics and response point. Uh, yes, Tris says conflicting messages. Yes, totally. I think there's a lot of things that could potentially be done. And you know, looking at these types of events and what can be learned from them, um, I think that schools can do a lot more as it relates to communication and notifying uh, and and being able to initiate those necessary lockdowns in those kind of events, so that we don't have these issues, we don't have these miscommunications and and so forth. Um, having some, you know, I I I think I I'm amazed that schools some do, but many do not 
uh, I'm amazed that more schools don't have some kind of tone or alarm that sounds totally different than a fire alarm uh, that immediately, you know, as soon as you hear it, you know what that means. Uh, and you could have teachers or administrators that have key fob almost like devices or at least something within close enough reach in the classroom, whatever that can, you know, anyone at any time can immediately hit that button, hit that alarm and put that school into lockdown mode. And that immediately trips, you know, that alarm and everyone goes, you know, then everyone is on the same page and knows what's going on would be. Uh, and then I would even say that, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of things gotta be looked at there. You might almost consider having that, uh, you know, kind of lockdown or active shooter type alarm be, uh, uh, take priority over a fire alarm because that is such a common technique for active shooters to try to use fire alarms to draw people out. Anyway, um, what one of our school districts around uh, me, Riley, mm-hmm. uh, they actually go along and when the fire alarm is pulled, the maintenance supervisor has to run to the alarm panel to figure out where the alarm was pulled mm-hmm. and then has to go to the, that part of the building before they uh, start evacuation. That's tough. Just because of what happened in Parkland. Yeah. And, you know, on the one hand, he's like, you know, you got to do it so you don't have a repeat of what happened in Parkland. On the flip side of it, that could be a minute or two delay in getting people out of the building if there really is truly a fire. And that's where what we're dealing with in these situations, yeah. is trying to find that balance between, you know, creating targets and also keeping our kids, you know, our co-workers all of those safe at the same time it's uh it's it's a yeah. new new something new that we've got to deal with yeah and, and it is a balance right but the but where we're at right now is it's probably imbalance imbalanced towards the uh, uh fire protection side because i mean frankly our schools do such a great job with uh fire alarms it's so such a great job now that for like 50 years we haven't lost a single child in a fire uh, because you know, Dave the, Grossman talks about that. It's been mm-hmm. since the fifties that we've lost anybody to a school fire. Right. And you know, the uh, monthly drills that we have. Right. Right. So now the, the yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, and, and that's a tough one because you got fire codes now that, you know, are, are, are basically, they hold the force of law and in, in, in many jurisdictions that, you know, like there's, there's quite a bit of groundwork that's got to occur because there, there actually are some conflicting things between what fire code requires and what some of the things that we want to be able to do to protect people in the event of an active shooter. Uh, meaning things like, you know, one thing that would be awesome is being able to, in a, in a lockdown, you know, situation where that could be triggered and immediately everything just like locks, literally locks down. At the same time, you you that conflicts with fire code where people got to be able to get out, you know, and there's got to be means to do that. And so like, Mm -hmm. it's all got to be balanced, but there's probably some things that got to be looked at as far as maybe laxing a few things on the fire side. So we can make it a little bit easier to protect people on the, uh, on the tactics side, as far as dealing with these, uh, these mass murders. Um, Tris actually, uh, you're, or Michael, you're, you're, you're on the right track as far as one of the things I was thinking about when I was talking about, it's amazing how bad guys tend to not shoot through things or, th- or, or shoot when they can't see what they're trying to shoot at. Cause he says like the guy in the grocery store shooting over the racks when he could have just shot through. And I think we talked about that on an episode, uh, as a video, I think out of South America someplace. Yeah, the potato chip racks that he was shooting over instead yep. of through, they were just potato chips. Exactly. So, I mean, that's why. I used to be very much like, well, there's cover and there's concealment and like, you know, concealment sucks. 
you know, you got to get cover, you got to get cover. And like, I, I've sort of started to change a little bit in that, that, that concealment and cover are almost always as good. I mean, cover obviously is always better, but it's all like, you, you just take what you can get to, man. Like get to the nearest thing that hides or shields you from the bad guy. And that is, that is, well, like Dan is saying here, 99.9, he's not saying this exactly, but 99.9% better than being caught out in the open. So, oh, so many great comments and, and discussion here tonight, guys. I think we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, I, I'll just throw it at you one more time, Rob. Is there any last things, uh, notes, comments, suggestions, uh, lessons learned that you want to put out there to the folks tonight? Um, the biggest thing, I'll repeat what I said before, is uh, when somebody is caught, you know, any, any of us, We've really got to go along and keep one thing in mind that we've got to do what it takes in order to uh, survive. Uh, many of us work in places where we can't carry or we're in a place that won't allow us to carry. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're completely unarmed. Uh, we've got probably the most dangerous weapon uh, between our ears. And if we go along and use our mind to think about what we can do with our hands, uh, we were just talking about fire extinguishers, uh, a staple. A stapler, if you open it up, can make a really effective uh, kind yeah. of slapjack uh, with it. Scissors. Scissors. These are usually you know, allowed in offices. Well, uh, look at this. You know, a USB cord, you know, for charging a phone. You know, you can take that to, to tie somebody up to uh, mm. do all kinds of stuff like that. The thing that you've got to commit yourself to and understand you might get hurt. But you commit to that you're going to go along and come home, see your kids, come home, see your family, come home, see your spouse. And once you go along and start thinking that if I don't do this, I won't see them, all of a sudden we find a lot more initiative, a lot more uh, drive to survive and pretty much willing to do just about anything to make sure that we see tomorrow. Yep. Good, good wrap up, man. I think my last thing would be that I would add that uh, would be Consider, you know, think about this situation and think about others that have occurred and think about all the different stories we share on a weekly basis on the podcast, uh, our justified saves, for instance, uh, and uh, really do an honest, deep uh, evaluation of yourself. Are you ready, okay, to to respond in some of these uh, cases, some of these instances? Are your skills where they need to be? And be honest. Don't fool yourself into thinking, yeah, I'm good enough. I'm good enough. You know, like how good are you really? Can you make those shots when they when they count, when they need to count? Uh, can you shoot under pressure, under time? Can you shoot on the move? Can you shoot at something that is moving? Uh, you know, do you have these skills in place and are they reasonably solid? All right. I would do that evaluation. And also, are you are you prepared on the medical side? Are you prepared on the physical side? Are you prepared on the response side? Are you prepared mentally? You know, all these things. Do this evaluation. And if you, you know, and chances are, you know what? Because when I do the same evaluation, I recognize that there are holes, right? Like I've made a lot of progress in the last number of years, as many of you have as well. I I, I know you do. I see the emails. I, I appreciate so many of you for writing us at the podcast. A common theme, Rob, that I've seen recently is 
is people writing in and saying something along the lines of, thank you so much for what you do. I've been listening to the podcast for a year. This last year has transformed me in so many ways. I've become such a better uh, shooter. I've become so much more prepared. Uh, just, you know, kind of listening to this show on a weekly or twice a week basis. And, and and it's been making a difference in some people's lives. And I'm I'm thrilled to hear those kind of reports. And the truth is I do a, a evaluation on myself and I know what my weaknesses are. I know where I could be better and what I got to do today and tomorrow and this week and next week and this year is find those opportunities where I can work at it. I can practice, I can train, I can obtain, I can uh, attend courses, things like that, that will help me eliminate those weaknesses and those holes and just continue to get better and better and better. So I would encourage you all to do that and take advantage of all the resources we have here at concealedcarry.com. Hopefully you can make, you know, one of our training courses coming up. You can maybe train with Rob. He's out there in the Cincinnati area. He's a great instructor. Uh, He's close to Impact Shooting Center. Uh, Give give Shane some uh, love there. Uh, That's where we recently held our uh, uh, Triple Guardian course, our three days, uh, a defensive handgun course uh, at, at Impact Shooting Center. It was a great time, and everybody learned a lot. And uh, anyway, get out there, train, work hard, practice, all that stuff. You guys know the drill. So time to wrap it up. Uh, just a reminder of uh, next week's uh, part of that preparation. I, I didn't even mention this, but I think it hopefully goes without saying that mentally, physically, but also knowledge-wise, not just about tactics, not just about shooting, but also about knowing the laws, understanding the laws. Join us next Wednesday, the 19th of September at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, or on Thursday, the 20th of September at 1 p.m. Mountain Time for the Law of Self-Defense live webinar talking about the the, law, the self-defense quiz that we recently, it's still actually live. If you'd still like to, if you haven't done the quiz and you'd like to take it, just see what it's all about. And we won't, you know, we'd be happy to get more responses because the more data we get, the the better it gets. You can go to selfdefensequiz.com and uh, you can take that little simple 10 question quiz and uh, see how you do. Um, But join us for the webinar next week. Get signed up at, it does require pre-registration because we have limited seats available. So go to lawselfdefense.org forward slash quiz seminar. Link in the show notes and other links that we've talked about tonight. Also in the show notes, show notes to be found at concealedcarry.com forward slash episode 256. Thank you one and all. Thank you those on Facebook. A great conversation here, guys. Um, So yeah, it, it was, I, I was really thrilled to have you on tonight, Rob, and I really appreciate the conversation. I thought this was this was good stuff tonight, man. It, it was a great conversation. We touched on a lot of topics, and I think I, I hope that everybody listening and or watching uh, really kind of understands where you know what we're talking about and the need to really you know get out there and and survive and make a difference. Yeah, man, good stuff. Well, with that, just a reminder to you all to uh, take care out there, to be safe, and uh, well, as as is on our coins and you get you can get one of these awesome challenge coins when you attend any one of our guardian courses right here yep and uh i i actually have a stack of more guardian nation member 
one-year anniversary coins. We don't talk about this very often. Boy, I'm spilling the beans, aren't I? Um, this was this started as, initially as a surprise for members. You hit one year being a member, and we send you this commemorative one-year anniversary coin. And that might be a hint that maybe something comes later on, too. I don't know. Anyway, so as is on the coin here, train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. Reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws. But things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.